Thank you, Zach, for reading our scripture tonight. We're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Last week we were talking about the value of Bible study, and I want to continue that theme for tonight, really carry over to tonight. And I want tonight to maybe discuss for a minute or two some of the tips for Bible study. All of us want to grow in our knowledge of God's Word, and so we have to have some type of plan in order to become more knowledgeable in the Word of God. So tonight I want to just spend some time and talk about some practical ways that we can grow in our knowledge of the Bible. And there are three things I want to share with you in our study tonight. The passage that was read a moment ago, study to show yourselves approved unto God. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Our goal, obviously, is to become more familiar with God's word. And so, in light of that, how can we do that? How can we accomplish growing in knowledge? How can we become better students of God's word? I want to begin by, first of all, talking about how we ought to study the Bible reverently. I want to just allude to a number of passages of Scripture. I want to begin by calling attention to Psalm 119, 161. In Psalm 119, and really in this one chapter, the psalmist underscores the tremendous value that God's Word has in the lives of people. In Psalm 119, 105, he said, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. Understanding that God's Word is what gives us direction in life. But in Psalm 119, 161, the psalmist said, My heart stands in awe of your Word. I want to begin by saying that when we study the Scriptures, when we hold in our hands a copy of the Bible, we're not just holding any book, but rather we are holding in our hands a book that comes to us from God the Almighty Creator. You remember in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul identified the author of Scripture. And he said the author of Scripture is God. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. In other words, the Scriptures are God-breathed. The Bible tells us that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He said, The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but rather holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Spirit of God. And so when we study the Scriptures, we are literally face to face with the mind of God. You recall in Ephesians chapter 3 when Paul talked about how he received revelation from God. And Paul would say to the Galatians that he didn't receive it by man. He wasn't taught it. But rather what he, what he was conveying to them was revelation from Almighty God. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul said that this revelation that he received from God, he wrote it down in human words. And there was a reason for that. The reasoning was so that, as Paul would say, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You recall over in Ephesians chapter 5, in writing to the saints at Ephesus, Paul would say, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How can we understand the will of the Lord? How can we grow in knowledge if we never open the Bible? 
And so hopefully and prayerfully all of us understand the source of Scripture is God, that He is the author. And the aim of Scripture set forth in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that we might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Now Paul said all Scripture inspired of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. God's Word has the ability to make us complete in the eyes of God. And when you go back to the book of Genesis, a book of origins, and you think about how many people today question where we came from, our source, our origin. And there are a lot of people that think that we're just a mass of tissue. And yet the Bible tells us that we have been made in the image and the likeness of God. There is something unique about us, something special that sets us apart, for example, from the animal kingdom. There is housed within us a living soul. And in Genesis, well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, when deity said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. God is spirit. And so we are like God in the sense, number one, that we have the ability to make choices in life, but number two, there is an eternal dimension to us. We have an outward man and inward man. And according to Moses in Genesis chapter 1, that's what makes us like God. You remember in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Bible says that God made man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And so the Bible lends insight into its author, lends insight into the aim. What is your purpose in life? What is my purpose? There are so many people in our world today that float aimlessly through life, and yet Scripture gives us aim, doesn't it? Provides us with direction. It gives us a sense of purpose. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes talked about how life is not just about things. It's not about power. It's not about fame. But rather, it's about fearing God and keeping His commandments. And so, we talk about the source of Scripture and then the all-sufficiency of Scripture. I mentioned a moment ago that when we study the Bible, we are literally face-to-face with the mind of God. We can observe creation and know that there has to be some type of intelligent being that created the universe. You remember what the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows His handiwork. You remember the words of the Hebrew writer when he said, every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is whom? It's God. All he's saying is design demands a designer. And so when we look at the scriptures, and when we begin to explore the scriptures and we think about the fact that there's a God that has revealed unto us his mind and his will. He's given us insight into our purpose for living. Given insight into who we are. Now I mentioned a moment ago, we can look at creation and tell there is a God. But how are you going to know anything about the nature or the character of God apart from his word? You wouldn't know anything about the mind of God, would you? Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 talks about this mystery that had been concealed, but now he said has been revealed. A mystery is something that we don't know anything about. And yet, 
What he's talking about in that context is the church and the fact that the church was in the mind of God from the very beginning of time and that the church was to be inclusive of the Gentile people. So, again, we talk about the mind of God. When you look at the scriptures, you are literally face to face with what God wants you to know about him, about his being, about his character. He is an eternal being. He has no beginning, no ending. He is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of redemption, a God of reconciliation, and on and on and on. But I think about, I think about the fact that we ought to approach the scriptures in our study with a sense of reverence, understanding that this book is different. It's on a higher plane than any other book known to man. Now, with regard to the sufficiency of Scripture, everything that we need to know, as Peter would say, that relates to life and godliness has been revealed. God has told us who created us. He did. He has told us our purpose. That's to fear Him. He has disclosed unto us the opportunity to be His children, to enjoy the blessings of eternal life. And so you think about all of the marvelous things that are revealed in Scripture. There's a second thing I want to call attention to in our study tonight, and I want you to maybe observe some passages with me for just a moment. I want to talk about how we ought to study the Bible discriminately. There are certain divisions in Scripture, and if we don't understand the divisions of Scripture, then we're going to have trouble. For example, the Old Testament is comprised of 39 books, isn't it? Why was the Old Testament recorded? You remember what, do you remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4? That those things that were written before time were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So we can go back to the Old Testament and we can look at what God has preserved for us and we can learn from those things. We can be inspired, we can be encouraged, we can be warned, on and on and on. And then the New Testament, composed of 27 books. And by the way, the scriptures were penned over a period of about 1,500 years by some 40 different writers. The Holy Spirit, of course, inspiring these men. And then in looking at the scriptures as a whole, you have to understand that there are three dispensations of time spoken of, beginning with the period of the patriarchs. The patriarchs would have included Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, etc. Abraham, of course, the father of the Hebrew nation. And then the Mosaic dispensation, the law of Moses. Moses, of course, became the leader and the lawgiver of ancient Israel. Today, those of us who are alive and in this world, we are under the law of Christ. So you think about those three dispensations spoken of in Scripture. There is the patriarchal period, the Mosaic dispensation, and then the Christian dispensation, the law of Christ. Well, why is it so important to understand the differences there? Well, one reason we need to understand the difference is because we're not under the Old Covenant any longer. We're under the new covenant, the law of Christ. I mentioned a moment ago that there are things that are recorded and they are recorded for our learning. 
And I want to talk a little bit about context in a moment, but I want you to see what I'm talking about. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5 for a minute. There are a lot of people today that live under the notion that we are still amenable to the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, the text says, Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. Now look at verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the children of Israel. He's not talking to us today. Look at verse 3. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us. Those of us who are here today, all of us who are here alive. The old covenant, the law of Moses, was given to the children of Israel. Now, I would grant that when you look at the Ten Commandments, with the exception of the Sabbath day, you'll find those commands laced throughout the New Testament. But we're not under that old law. Well, how do I know that definitively? Well, look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And again, we talk about rightly dividing the word of truth. In Colossians chapter 2, in verse 14, Paul said, having blotted out or having wiped out the handwriting of ordinances or requirements that was against us which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross so what did God do with that old law he nailed it to the cross didn't he he took it out of the way it has been abrogated removed we're not under that covenant today and then one other passage look at Hebrews chapter 9 in Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 15, the writer said, For this reason, he, that is Jesus, is a mediator of a new covenant. Back in chapter 8, he spoke of Christ as the mediator of a better covenant, which was, as he said, established on better promises. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. And so Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant under which we now live. So what law then are we under? Are we under the period of the patriarchs? No. Are we under the law of Moses? No. We are under, as Paul would say in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, the law of Christ. It's called the perfect law of liberty in James chapter 1, verse 25. This is the law that we're amenable to today. So you have to understand the distinctions, the differences in covenants. Now I mentioned a moment ago context. It's important to look at the context. Sometimes you have to look at the overall context. For example, there's a term that is used by those who study Scripture called thematic interpretation. All that means is looking, first you look at the context, and then you may need to look at the whole of context. In other words, you need to look at the whole of Scripture and see what the Scripture has to say in light of that context you're looking at. Sometimes people misunderstand Scripture because they fail to keep things in context. And they fail to look at 
remote context, other context, which ultimately amplify the truth of God. You remember the psalmist said, the sum of your word is truth. Sometimes it's important, for example, to take a subject. And you'll take that subject and you'll look at every single passage of Scripture related to that. And then what do you do? You begin ferreting through that. And then you draw your conclusions. This is what the Bible has to say on this subject. When you look at certain passages of Scripture, it's helpful to ask, first of all, why was it written? Why was this particular letter, this particular book in the Bible, written? Was there a purpose? There's a purpose. Is there a thesis statement, for example, in a certain book? And there is. Two past, or rather, two books, for example. The book of Ephesians accentuates the church of Christ. When you read the six chapters of the book of Ephesians, you come away with an appreciation for the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. The first three chapters of Ephesians deal with the redemptive plan of God, the reconciliation that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. In chapters 4 through 6, he talks about our responsibilities as God's people, our responsibilities to the Lord, our responsibilities as members of the body of Christ. Paul writing from a Roman prison, it's one of the prison epistles, and there is a specific purpose, the book of Colossians. Colossians emphasizes Christ and really points out that in all things, Jesus might have the preeminence. So you take those two books and you look at them and you see Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he's stressing the church of Christ. He's writing to the Colossians and he's stressing the Christ, the one in whom all the Godhead dwelt bodily, as he would say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. So why was it written? A second question, when was it written? It's important to understand something about the time in which a document was penned. And then here's a third question to ask. To whom was it written? Sometimes, for example, I mentioned just a moment ago, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Sometimes folks look at Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, they look at the book of Exodus, they think about the Ten Commandments, and they say, you know what, we're under the Ten Commandments today. No, we're not. Why? The law wasn't given to us. God didn't give us the law of Moses, did he? Not at all. We're under the law of Christ. Let me give you a New, a New Testament example of what I'm talking about. Look at the book of 1 John for a minute. In 1 John, John is writing to Christians. How do I know that? Well, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, John said, This is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. So John is writing to New Testament Christians, isn't he? What does a person have to do to become a New Testament Christian? Well, they have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of their sins, confess His name, and then be immersed in water so that all their sins can be washed away. Sometimes, though, people will look at 1 John chapter 1 and they will extract verse 9 where John said, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If somebody who has never obeyed the gospel reads that, 
and says that's all they have to do to become a child of God, they misunderstand the scriptures. They're not looking at this contextually from the vantage point of the people to whom it was addressed. Somebody who's not a member of the body of Christ, this isn't their mail. This letter wasn't written to non-Christians, it was written to whom? To Christians. And John is saying that as a child of God, if we stumble and fall, we can confess our sins and God is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, understanding the people to whom it was written. Let me give you another example. Look at the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have an abundance of figurative language. And I would imagine that many people in the religious world probably abuse the book of Revelation more than any other book that I know of. And so many people look at the book of Revelation and they have built this whole doctrine around ultimately Christ returning, sitting upon a literal throne in the city of Jerusalem and there reigning for a thousand years. Well, you've got to understand something about the backdrop from which this book was written. You've got to understand something about the time in which it was written. You've got to understand something about the people to whom it was written. So, look at Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1, which God gave him to show his servants. Now listen. Things which must shortly. The footnote in the New King James is quickly or swiftly. Things which must shortly come to pass or take place. Now I want to ask you, how many people when they, read, when they read the book of Revelation have in mind that John is projecting way out into the future? This millennial reign of Jesus in the land of Palestine. Most folks do. Let me ask this question. How would that have been to the advantage of those people to whom John was writing? John is writing to Christians who are being pummeled by the Roman Empire. Domitian is on the throne. The time is about A.D. 95 or 96, the latter part of the first century. And these Christians are suffering martyrdom. As a matter of fact, over in chapter 6, John talks about the souls of those that had been beheaded. Some were dying for their faith. Some had died for their faith. And what John is saying is, look, you may lose your physical life here upon this earth, but you need to understand there is a God in heaven who will take care of you whether you live or whether you die. That's why in chapter 14, verse 13, he could say, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So John is writing to Christians. Matter of fact, listen to verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, in the book of Revelation, did John talk about the end of time? Yes, he did. He talked about the judgment to come. He talked about the fact that those whose names are not written in the, in the Lamb's book of life, they're going to go to hell. He talked about those whose names are in the, in the Lamb's book of life, they're going to heaven. He talked about how beautiful heaven will be. And on and on and on. 
But again, you've got to understand the context, the backdrop, the history. And then I think another question to ask, what's the application? When you read the scriptures and you begin going through the questions, why was it written? To whom was it written? When was it written? Well, another question is, what's the application for me? There has to be some type of application for my life. Can I read the book of Revelation and come away with, with application for my life? Yes, I can. All i got to do is read, for example, chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia. And you have modern-day application for every situation you face in the church today. So, context. Another thing I would point out very quickly. It has to do with the silence of Scripture. And here's the question. Is silence, is the silence of Scripture, is it permissive or prohibitive? Somebody says, well, God didn't explicitly say, you can't do this, okay? So does that mean that you have the liberty to just do as you please? Let me give you a couple of examples very quickly. Go back and look, if you would, at Genesis chapter 6, the silence of Scripture. Is silence permissive or prohibitive? In Genesis chapter 6, you remember God decreed he was going to destroy the world by means of a flood. In verse 8, the Bible says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation, blameless. He walked with God. Verse 9, God said to Noah, verse 13, The end of all flesh has come before me. The earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them, that is, the people on the earth, I will destroy them. So here's verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, that is 450 feet. He said it's width 50 cubits, 75 feet. It's height 30 cubits, 45 feet. I want to ask you a question. When God said to Noah, I want you to build this ark and I want you to use gopher wood, could Noah have built an ark using pine, cedar, cherry, oak? Well, why didn't God have to say, now, Noah, you understand you're to use gopher wood and gopher wood alone. And you can't use cherry and pine and oak, etc. He didn't have to say that. Why? Because when God said, I want you to build an ark, and here's what you do, you build it with gopher wood, that excluded every other kind of wood. God didn't have to say to Noah, thou shalt not use any other type of wood. Let me give you another example. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. Moses wrote, at that time the Lord separated set apart the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. God set apart a priestly tribe, didn't he? And what he's saying here is, I've set apart the tribe of Levi, and they're going to function in priestly capacities on my behalf. Did God have to say to the tribe of Judah, now look, you guys can't, you can't officiate in worship to me. He didn't have to say that, did he? 
What about the tribe of Simeon? And the other tribes, did God have to specifically say they are not to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord? No, he didn't have to say that. Why? Because God said specifically, I want you to set apart the tribe of Levi and they're going to function in this capacity. So the silence of Scripture, is it permissive or prohibitive? Sometimes people say, well, you know, if God didn't explicitly say you can't do it, you can do it. Well, God didn't explicitly say the tribe of Judah was not to function in a priestly capacity, but he didn't have to say it, did he? By way of application today, if I were to ask you to go to Costco and buy me a set of tires for my automobile, if I said, would you go and buy me a set of tires, here's the money, well, you have the liberty to buy any set of tires you desire. You could buy Uniroyal, you could buy Michelin, you could buy Goodyear, on and on and on. But if I said, now look, I want you to go to Costco and buy me a set of Michelin tires. If you were to come back with Goodyear tires, did you do what I asked you to do? No, you didn't. You got me some tires, but you didn't follow what I said. There's a difference in generic and specific, isn't there? So when... So when in the realm of religion, God says, this is how I want it to be, that excludes everything else. In the New Testament, what did God say about our worship to him? Did God say, thou shalt not use an instrument of music in worship to me? Can you read that anywhere in the scriptures? No. What did God say? Look at Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians 3. One of the things that we have to do in our study of the Scriptures is to come to an appreciation of the authority of Scripture. Understanding that God is the one that dictates how we do things. It's not up to me. Nowhere has God ever given us the latitude to worship Him on our terms. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. When God says for us to sing, that excludes everything else. In other words, He didn't have to say, you can't use an instrument. Why? Because He said to sing. We are to sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The instrument upon which we are to make melody is stated by Paul. What is that instrument? It's the human heart, isn't it? So, we have to understand something about the silence of the Scriptures. Very quickly, let's look at a third thing in our study. We need to study the Bible methodically. There has to be some type of structure, plan, or organization in order for us to come away with some type of working knowledge of the Bible. I want to begin by, first of all, stressing the fact there is no substitute for regular study in the Bible. 
regularly studying. Do you remember what was said of the psalmist in Psalm 1 verse 2? How he meditated on the law of Jehovah how often? Day and night, didn't he? Psalm 1-2. You remember in Psalm 119, 97, when he said, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. What do you take away from that? What I take away from it is, here was a man devoting himself to studying the Bible. The only way that you and I will ever know more about the Scriptures, only one way, study. I don't know of any, I don't know of any easy way to become more familiar, more knowledgeable in the Word of God. The only thing I know to do is just study. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, when Peter wrote to new Christians, he said, As a newborn baby, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you might grow thereby. You remember in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter said, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The goal is to grow, isn't it? The food that will help us grow is this book called the Bible. Paul had written to Timothy and he said, Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. Just like you go to the gym and you work your body, you work out, you do cardio, you lift weights. Why do you do that? Because you're trying to get in shape. You want to be fit. The only way to become spiritually fit, spend time reading and studying the scriptures. I would encourage you, pick a time of day that fits best for your schedule. Most people typically are sharper mentally early in the morning. Now, Some people like to study at night, and that's fine. But for most people, early in the morning is the best time to study. I would encourage you, find a quiet place to study. Maybe you've got a place in your, in your house that's, that's a place you go and you study and meditate. That's what I'm talking about. And then roping off some time. And look, five or ten minutes a day is not enough. And just reading a chapter a day is not enough to really grow in knowledge. Look, it's a start. Nothing wrong with reading a chapter. But there has to be some type of intense study. My dad used to say you got to roll up your sleeves and get to work. Sometimes you just got to dive in. And there are, th are there things that are difficult to understand? Yes. You remember Peter talked about the writings of Paul. He said, which things, which some things are hard to understand. He didn't say it's impossible. He just said they're difficult to understand. There are some things that will challenge you mentally when you begin looking at the scriptures. So, no substitute for regular daily Bible study. And I'd encourage you to study every day. Matter of fact, the children of Israel, the people to whom the law had been given... They were chided by Hosea because of their lack of knowledge. And really, there was no reason for that. They had entrusted unto them the oracles of God, and yet they didn't study, and as a result of that, they had all kinds of problems. And then what about developing some type of systematic approach to studying the Bible? You know, a carpenter has certain tools for his trade, doesn't he? 
A mechanic, same thing. If a guy's going to be a mechanic, he's got to have some tools, doesn't he? If you want to study the scriptures, you've got to have some tools. And I would begin by saying you need a good translation of the scriptures. The best literal translation of the scripture is the American Standard Version of 1901. That's the absolute best that I know of. There might be something else out there that I'm not familiar with, and by no means am I an expert in languages. But that 1901 edition translation is, is absolutely on target. Great translation. The New American Standard Version is a good translation. The New King James Version is a good translation. The King James Version is a good translation. And really what you're looking for is a translation and not a paraphrase. There are some translations that are a paraphrase. The NIV would fall under that category. It is a paraphrase version. And so, if you want to understand, if you want to look at something that most closely resembles the original, that is the original writings in Hebrew and Greek, then I would suggest an American Standard version. I would I would suggest a New American Standard. The English Standard is an outstanding translation. You can go to Christian Courier and read. As a matter of fact, Wayne Jackson has written extensively about some of the translations, and you will be amazed at what he has to say, some really good material. So you need a good translation, and then you need some good commentaries. The old standard gospel advocate commentaries are great, great tools. You need some encyclopedias, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, a dictionary, a lexicon, a concordance. You might want some maps of Palestine. Lands of the Bible, J.W. McGarvey wrote a book talking about some of the lands of the Bible. Brotherhood journals. I would encourage you to take a subscription to Spiritual Sword, the Gospel Advocate. I don't think, I think Christian Courier, or rather, if I recall correctly, Spiritual Swords, maybe $8. Gospel Advocates, maybe $13 a year. It's cheap, but it's well worth it. Internet sources, Christian Courier. Just plug it in on Google search. Great, great site. Wealth of material, Apologetics Press. Another great site. There is a, another site, Christian Study Light. I use it a lot. It's got everything from commentaries to lexicons and dictionaries, you name it. It's got all kinds of materials. Free, too. So you can plug in there. And then, of course, the Gospel Broadcasting Network would be another uh, place, another source, resource. And very quickly, when you study Scripture, I would encourage you to study the books of the Bible. Pull out a book of the Bible, whether it be Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, an Old Testament book, and study it. Try to become acquainted with it. Do a character study. Look at some of the great characters of Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all those great characters of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament characters. And then there are topics and themes. Topics or themes like the plan of redemption, the church, worship, salvation, etc. Another thing you'll want to do 
Spend some time looking at the words in the text. Do a word study. Pull out a, If you don't understand what a word means, then do a study on it. For example, the word sanctification. What does that word mean? It means to set apart. Just one example. The church. We talk about the church. What's the church? What is the church? What is the church? It's the ecclesia, the called out. So those are some things that will help you. And then one other thing very quickly, and that is you've got to look at the Bible historically. What's the historical background about what you're reading? You go back to the Old Testament and you think about the children of Israel. Where were they? They were in the land of Egypt. And then you think about, you think about some of the prophets and their writings and the times in which they were writing and some of the major players of that day. For example, the Assyrians and the fact that they took the northern kingdom into captivity in about 722. The Babylonians, another mighty kingdom. The Grecians and then the Romans. And the church was born during the days of the Roman kings. So you've got to know something about history, the time in which it was written. Look, I hope what we've said tonight has been helpful. I hope it has. And, you know, my goal is to learn more, study more, grow more. And I would hope that all of us have that same desire. If you're here tonight and maybe you know enough to become a New Testament Christian, well, what, what do you need to know? You need to know Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for your sins. You need to understand that He is the Son of God. Be willing to repent of your sins, confess His name, be immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away, Acts 2.38. If you'll do that, God will then add you to the church, Acts 2.47. And if you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful, you need the prayers of the church, look, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.